welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia, and here's my co-host Morgan. Hello. This week we're going to answer some listener questions. We have many on a very wide variety of topics, so thank <laughs> you for sending in questions about Commonwealth politics, many, many films and TV shows, general stuff about our podcast, just loads of really interesting stuff in here. So stay tuned. I'm afraid we got a lot of questions basically asking, have you seen this movie and will you discuss it? And there was kind of too many to read out. So thank you very much. And um, those questions will have to remain unknown unless you want to personally hit us up on Twitter. But please always feel free to kind of suggest films or topics that you think we ought to discuss in the show because we love suggestions. Yeah, and we'll definitely take some of these up in the future. But again, there were just too many to there talk about and we have many other questions so thank you thank you everyone <laughs> yes so to begin the first was from punctual on twitter and the question is question for both of you if you could pick one movie franchise to wipe out and remove all memory of it which would it be which is a fantastic question and i'm not sure what my answer is what do we think there are so many options yeah I mean, it's wow it's really difficult, right? Because I would say if we're talking about franchises that I think were just culturally just ruinous and I really, really just didn't get anything positive out of, the top three would be Transformers, which I've really not seen in like 10 years, but is ubiquitous. The Batman v Superman movies, which are just really soul destroying and Avatar. But I feel like I get a certain amount of entertainment out of making fun of Avatar. So I feel like I will keep that one, even though it's kind of ridiculous that it still exists in the world and they claim to be making more. Um, the Batman v Superman films, I have to retain information about for work purposes. So I think the only option is that I would erase the Transformers franchise, but I still feel like knowing about the Transformers franchise is helpful as a film critic for comparison's sake, so I can, you know, discuss the work of Michael Bay. But this would be wiping it out, I assume, from the world. Oh, Not I thought like this was personal memory. memory. I thought I no, thought it no. still existed. We've got two very different interpretations of this question. To wipe out and remove all memory of it, I think quite clearly means from the universe. Oh, well, large. Transformers then. We're going to wipe out the entire memory of the Transformers <laughs> franchise because that is a colossally successful franchise which has had a lot of terrible effects, aesthetically speaking, on yeah. Hollywood blockbusters. <laughs> And really, ha that had a huge, huge impact in terms of tentpole style of studio filmmaking. I mean, it had a stylistic effect, but I, what I'm trying to say is the way studios approach movie making strategically. So as we have talked about before, and as many, many, many people have talked about, um, particularly recently, actually, with the release of the James Gray movie, The Lost City of Z, which is actually a real mid-budget film, those movies don't get made anymore. And a lot of that has to do with the Transformers franchise specifically, which made a gajillion dollars and still makes tons of money, which is insane to me. And because of those films, and obviously others, but like those were really influential, studios were like, oh, well, we can just release, like, six huge movies a year, and that's fine. I mean, obviously a lot of that is also due to Marvel, because everyone wants to copy yes. the way that... But, like, it's it's weird, but... right? Because, like, the way Marvel succeeds is by getting people emotionally attached to characters, and then they watch the crossover movies. But, like, I don't... I mean, maybe I'm just not speaking to the right people, but I don't think people are emotionally attached to the Transformers franchise. No, they just like watching transformed cars hit each other and Which is make fine. weirdly sexualized jokes. 
I mean, I don't. So... I personally hate that, but I love the Fast and Furious franchise, which is primarily cars. Although there is also a lot of emotions in that, so it's slightly. It's more in my bag. <laughs> but Transformers started it. I mean, really, Star yeah. Wars started it. This is all Star Wars's fault, if we want to be honest. But no one wants to get rid of Star Wars, so no. we can get rid of. I mean, Star Wars instead. is just unequivocally good. So. <laughs> <laughs> So um, we're going to get rid of Transformers. Goodbye, Transformers. Goodbye, Michael Bay. You are done now. That's I'm not going to be sad to see Michael Bay go. No, we we have affected this immediately. If for your information, there are no more no more Transformers films. Goodbye to the fourteen screenplays currently in production for the Transformers <laughs> franchise. Farewell. Oh dear. Oh dear. Okay. So question number two is from. Okay, all the rest of these are from Tumblr questions, but this is from Eek One Mouse. <laughs> um, what is one trend you see in movies that you would like to stop? Or alternatively, one trend that you want to see picked up by more films? Hmm. I mean, there are so many bad things. Where to begin? I mean, there's really general um, stuff, like maybe don't have sexism in your films. But there's, I think there's one thing that Morgan and I complain about quite a lot that doesn't really come up in reviews and it's films that end five minutes after they should yes this is my personal bugbear it's true that's a good answer to this question last year was a particularly bad year for this i don't know why there were so many of them like indie movies and big films just across the board yeah i I kept meaning to take notes because i feel like there were five or six films last year that i genuinely enjoyed and then they had sort of an extraneous part at the end even if it's 30 seconds long like it's just not necessary and you're detracting from the experience (laughs) yeah i don't know if anyone saw there was a tiny little indie michael fassbender did called slow west that was really superb throughout like i would recommend this film despite what i'm about to say it's definitely worth watching and then there was a coda of around a minute and a half that so undercut what the film had been doing the entire time there was a lot of interesting stuff about gender and to a lesser degree sexuality and then the end i was like uh you maybe didn't understand what you were saying the whole time sing street did the same thing i just thought oh no i mean the ultimate one is the hunger games but that's in the book yes i'm sure some people like the final epilogue of the hunger games but I actually find it more indefensible than the final like epilogue of Harry Potter, which does have a rationale behind it that I don't personally agree with, but I understand it. The epilogue of the Hunger Games, I'm just like, no, what have you done? <laughs> <laughs> this is a disgrace. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good answer. I would agree with that. But what is the thing that we would add? What is the what is the trope or whatever that we want to add to more films in Hollywood? It's just gay, gay characters. Yeah, I mean, get on that. <laughs> That's obvious. Very generally, I would appreciate more, more romantic comedies being made, which is not a trope, but just a general trend. Reese Witherspoon is going to act in a romantic comedy again that's coming out in the fall, I believe. I mean, that is a savior to yes. us all. <laughs> Thank you, Reese returning to your roots but romantic comedy is like i love classical romantic comedies but modern ones aren't even really my genre but it makes me crazy that they don't seem to ever really make them anymore except small indie ones like obvious child because it's such a sort of 
classic female genre and I feel like studios basically just sort of shrugged and were like oh well we don't need these anymore because we make movies like Transformers and I find that very frustrating so hopefully Reese Witherspoon saves us all in general I feel like that's you know a hope that we can have I think I'd also like it if there were more casting directors working in Hollywood who understand what women find appealing. Yes. Yes. Because there's a lot of films that are trying to sell a certain brand of gentleman as a romantic lead. (laughs) And either you're talking about, I mean, sometimes it's kind of just someone who's just like a real sad sack dweeb and you're like, yeah, this is definitely just a male fantasy about hot girls wanting a sad sack dweeb. But then also there'll be sort of leading men that are just this like hulk and the hulk isn't really a physical aspect it's more like a it's more like a kind of spiritual thing right because if there's one man that's extremely hulkish it's channing tatum but spiritually he understands what the ladies need right he made both magic mike movies and now he's making a mermaid rom-com where he's the mermaid like he gets it he gets it right so if more casting directors whoever's working on the new labyrinth movie if they just cast an attractive man, it's not going to work. You need to understand the the spirit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I've been watching all these classic Hollywood films, right? And obviously men were smaller in like the 30s and 40s. And in many respects, more sexually appealing than these like massive, like roided out men in a lot of current films. But also Cary Grant is the ultimate leading man for women in that period and he has as one article i recently read put it a sexual ambiguity about him that is part of what makes him so good in all of those films so you know yeah like the rock and vin diesel should look like the way they look but there are many leading men in hollywood who have been pressured into attempting to maintain that general aura (laughs) and that's not what they should be focusing on they should be focusing on other things while not being like 300 pounds of muscle yeah so so that's our request allow sebastian stan to lose weight (laughs) is what i'm saying essentially in summary (laughs) please oh my god horrible uh breath cue i'm not gonna read this whole thing but is asking what movies have our favorite costumes. You are more equipped to answer this than I am, although I appreciate costumes very much. What would you say to that? Well, naturally, I was paralyzed by indecision because there are so many films. It's almost unheard of for me to watch a film and think that had actively bad costumes, except in some cases where clearly a director has told them to just wear clothes that are terrible so i think passengers is an example of that yeah. um, oh my because god because the costume designer did great work on other stuff and in passengers you're like why are they dressed like this <laughs> why is bad. jennifer lawrence going on a spaceship travel journey and brought the clothes of a 45 year old billionaire with her but um anyway <laughs> yeah i think the the my favorite movie about contemporary fashion that i always go back to is inception because the suits are all gorgeous and they all kind of very clearly delineate the different personality traits of the characters um, while also sort of feeding into the general business Ocean's Eleven aesthetic of the film. And it's it's by the same costumer as Ocean's Eleven, which also has great costumes. Uh, but overall, it's got to be the Star Wars franchise because every single visual aspect of Star Wars, except the CGI and the prequels, is amazing. It all looks super beautiful. The costumes have like a really clear universe. Even last night, just after the new Last Jedi trailer came out, I was sitting there like, 
look, Ray's got a new poncho. And we're kind of like hammering out like a kind of semi-facetious, semi-very serious fan theory about how it's actually about like the lower classes wearing poncho was battling the aristocracy wearing capes. <laughs> it's true. Because all of the lead characters in Star Wars have ponchos. You start off with Luke's dorky little tether poncho, which is like a full nerd poncho. And then, you know, Princess Leia, once she throws off her aristocracy, she starts wearing ponchos in the forest when she stops being glamorous. And then Rey has a poncho, Jen Erso has a poncho, Body Rook has a poncho, and all the posh people have evil capes. And then Lando Calrissian is in the middle with like a kind of a short stylish cape when he takes over as governor of Cloud City, employed by the Empire, but still technically affiliated with the rebellion. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess I would say probably Velvet Goldmine. Oh, that's a really good one. Yeah, and uh, Notorious, which has some classic classic movie gowns by Edith Head on Ingrid Bergman, which are very, very good. Uh, moving on to the next question. Chunkless and All Weather says, what were your first fandoms and what drew you to them? Excellent question. Uh, Harry Potter. <laughs> also Harry Potter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I... I I feel like you can kind of trace back a fanish person's personality through earlier childhood obsessions, but the first actual fandom would be Harry Potter when we were both like, I guess, eight. And then, yeah. I, mean, I discovered the internet part when I was like 11. Right. I was a little older than you with the internet, but I mean, we got the first Harry Potter book when I was eight. Yeah, and same. Very so, early adopters. Yeah, I, I appreciate the fact that I can call myself like a Harry Potter hipster because my mother yeah. was a teacher and especially in the United States it definitely was not a thing at that point but an English teacher at her school said like there's this book that just came out and your kids will love it you have to get it and so I was the one who was like trying to get my friends to read this book and they were like this is weird I don't want to read this and I did convince a couple of them and so we had this little coterie of like we were fans before it was a big phenomenon <laughs> I remember being tremendously offended because I tried to persuade one of my friends and she said she'd already read it. And then like months later, I made some comment about her being a Slytherin and then she didn't know I was what she was talking about and had lied to me when we were like nine or something. Oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> Such a betrayal. Yeah. We had to order Chamber of Secrets via Amazon, which was of course like a new thing. So this is very novel from the United Kingdom because it wasn't released in the US well, they hadn't until translated later. It yet. Yeah, and then there were all these weird words like torch <laughs> for a flashlight. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this is very foreign and exciting. They but... should have just kept it because no yeah. one thinks flashlight. So... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it was it was serious business. And yeah. then later, of course, the internet became yeah. a thing. I was very into Harry Potter fanfic fandom, but like wasn't super participatory. So I was, oh, yeah, no. you know, I was a child. So I was sort of lurking on live journal and reading a lot of fan fiction. Yes. And then later on moved into other realms where I actually participated. Yeah, same. It's always Harry Potter, I think, for people of our generation. <laughs> yeah, for a generation. <laughs> yeah. Um, what is our, po oh, from Oscaraga. If I'm pronouncing that right. What is our podcast story? How do we decide to make one? And what has the whole experience been like? Um, we decided to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry we don't have a good origin story. We are friends. <laughs> yes, have been friends for many years. And uh, somewhat spontaneously. I mean, we've discussed it for a long time before doing it. But I don't remember any particular 
impetus. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was curious about it. And then once I started looking up other podcasts of this ilk, I discovered all podcasts are by men. So I was like, yeah. well, now we have to do it. I mean, exactly. that is a slight exaggeration, but like, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can think of a few that I like that even have women on them. I think there's one I listen to that's co-hosted by women. And that's probably also like a fault of mine. Of course, there are others out there but certainly it is a field dominated by men so our next question kind of ties into that theme two people kind of asked us about female directors and are you planning to incorporate more movies by women this is fair-headed kings and uncalibrated pipettes um so do we have favorite women directors or films directed by women and are we planning to incorporate more films made by women uh, yes, we are planning to do that. We routinely kind of rouse the lists of just like films by women because there are so few that are sort of things that are that we can discuss in a fun manner because there's quite a lot of serious dramas that are by women and are ranging from you know good to bad like any other type of film but they're not really discussable and also a lot of these best of lists launch straight in with Lenny Reifenstahl the uh, <laughs> the Nazi propagandist and it's like maybe don't lead with that I know that she is a huge icon of vintage cinema but her movies are 100% Nazi propaganda so that's not don't launch in with that but maybe I'm maybe I'm just a purist. Um, but yeah, we are in the near future. I think next week we are going to uh, discuss Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion, which I don't know if it's directed no, by women, it, but it's it written, by, written women. by women. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then we're gonna do another one later in the month or next month, I guess. Yeah, it is something that we discuss a lot and then don't do enough, which aggravates me even though it's my own fault. But I think this tends to happen when you are reacting a lot to big mainstream culture stuff, which is then sort of a vicious cycle because, of course, it's part of our job to try to find things that are done by women that are coming yeah. out. And but a lot of the time when it's sort of the blockbusters that are aimed at least somewhat at women even they aren't directed by women so you know like Beauty and the Beast was directed by Bill Condon and off the back of that he's now going to be directing The Bride of Frankenstein and it's like at some point Hollywood probably ought to just derail that but okay. <laughs> right and so then if we say okay we want to talk about the big blockbusters which is what a lot of people are talking about and what we know a lot of people want to listen to then that's inevitably stuff that has been made by men. Wonder Woman is an exception to that rule, happily. Um, but it does... But then if you just... If your excuse is just, well, all the big stuff is made by men, then you're part of the problem. And so it becomes this sort of <laughs> endless yeah. endless cycle of badness. But we but do want to... What is what is your fave? That. Or do you have any fave female directors? That's um, the latter half of this question. Yes. Shane Campion and Sofia Coppola. I would say certainly, and Catherine Bigelow, which mm. were very obvious, very obvious answers. Uh, the first movie I saw that I remember being aware that it was directed by a woman, I'm sure I'd seen other things before this, although probably not that many, was Lost in Translation when I was 16, and I loved it so much. 
and I saw the Virgin Suicides not long after that. Um, and I think people sometimes hate on Sofia Coppola. I think she's totally a genius. And then with Jane Campion and Catherine Bigelow, um, the piano, which is one of the best films I've ever seen and which everyone should watch, was the first film I saw where I really sort of grasped that women directors could bring a distinct perspective to filmmaking. Like I love Sofia Coppola's movies and if you watch them, clearly a woman made them, but there's something about the piano that you kind of get like, oh, this is why this is so different. And like this film theory stuff that I've been doing in college and Catherine Bigelow is great. And I remember when she won that Oscar, I was watching in a room with all of my like women's college friends and a friend of mine and I like embraced and it was a very beautiful feminist <laughs> moment. <laughs> my friend who then like is now working in film and has you know there's been some connections with Catherine Bigelow which is just hilarious to me because we had this like essential bartered moment so yeah I have some sort of like personal affection for all three of them and I think that they're all also just like geniuses what about you um my favorite women filmmakers are the creators of Yuri on Ice <laughs> That's a beautiful answer. It's, that shows so much about what different people we are. <laughs> I mean, I also, the thing is, right, that it's partly kind of tying into what I was saying earlier about a lot of the films by women being um, quite serious dramas. So I've yeah. seen I've seen Top of the Lake by Jane Campion, which is a yes. mini series rather than a film and is just oh. incredible. But when you when I kind of look at the list of films by women, a lot of them are things like Boys Don't Cry which I'm never going to watch, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, last year, like at the London Film Festival, I kind of went out of my way to see um, quite a few movies by female directors, but I wouldn't describe any of them as like among my favourites ever. They were, you know, good. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be the creators of Yuri and Ice, and I cannot <laughs> step back from that choice. <laughs> Excellent. They've added so much to my life. <laughs> um... The Genuflector asks, are we going to do another film swap episode? I had completely forgotten that we did that, but we should definitely do that again and yeah, attempt so, to fail less badly. Yeah. So <laughs> basically what this was is because Morgan and I sometimes have very divergent tastes. As we, we just demonstrated. As we just demonstrated. <laughs> we used an episode to force each other to watch movies that we would never otherwise do. And... What what did you what did you mean? It was watch? Francis Ha and Speed Racer, and we yeah, both so we were both miserable. hated them because I was like, we both thought the other one would actually appreciate what we'd attempted to do, but it turned out that actually we do not know each other at all. Because I <laughs> asked Morgan to watch the Wachowski movie Speed Racer, which I've seen twice, and actually I'm considering watching a third time this year because I'm going to be doing a radio show about them. And I, I fucking love that movie. It's really great. And Morgan was just like, this is torture. And she made me watch Frances Ha, which I disliked so much. I left the house and went for a run halfway through because I couldn't stand watching it. <laughs> <laughs> so this time we're going to, you know, we will probably do one again in the future, but I think we need to reconsider. Yes. Because while I would love Morgan as one of my close friends to enjoy the Fast and Furious franchise as much as I do, I think you probably like the first one, but I'm not going to make you watch it or the others because I'm concerned that you might just be a just sacrilegious monster. <laughs> the, first, the first one is literally Point Break. The first one is Point Break with cars and it is very like emotionally sincere, but there's really no point 
in watching one Fast and Furious movie. You have to watch the progression of all seven, and I'm not going to make you watch 14 plus hours of large men throwing cars at each other. Yeah, that does not sound like my idea of a good time. No. So, but yes, thank you for reminding us of this. We will we will do a different kind of thing. Yes. <laughs> we will attempt not to actively torture each other. It will be a positive cultural exchange. Exactly. <laughs> okay, so next question um, by... Don't know my name, lol. <laughs> um, <laughs> any thoughts on doing non-show slash film things? I mean, I would love to do a book at some point, but you would have to read the book. <laughs> yeah, so... this, this does actually make me sound illiterate. I had a very <laughs> long period of my life where I would read like 50 books a week. And then just a couple of years ago, I stopped reading novels, basically. So like the first novel I've actually been properly reading in ages is American Gods, which I have to read for work. Oh, by the way, if you're listening to this, check out my incredible American Gods review, which was published a day before this came out. So very, very important coverage of that TV show, which we will be talking about later. Perhaps one day. (laughs) Yeah. At some point when I start reading books again, instead of reading like nonfiction only, we will do a book episode. I mean, we do occasionally do sort of politics episodes and we've done a couple of sports things. I have, you know, we should do. Yeah. We can do an episode on the new Philip Pullman book. Oh my god. I mean, that that I will be reading. <laughs> There's also a new Jean Le Carré book coming out in the fall. The problem is that while I do want to read that, I have not read as much Le Carré as you. It's true. All you have to do to, do to prepare, prepare to read for that, though, is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Smiley's People, which are not that long and are quick reads. That's doable. Yeah. I think I read Tinker Tailor years ago. And yeah. obviously I've seen the movie, which is a masterpiece. Yeah, because there are three books leading up to it, but the one in the middle is a nightmare. I have read it. It's like 600 pages long. It's terrible. And then you get to the third book and he doesn't discuss the second one at all because he clearly knew like this was the mistake. <laughs> so you could skip that one. And the third one is much shorter. And I read it in like two days. So anyway, we'll consider that, but pencil in uh, The Book of Dust, which we will discuss. Um, Where is my English? Elizabeth? Elizabeth? Something. Says, when is there going to be a Hannibal episode? (laughs) There probably isn't. I apologize. I mean, that is a very good question. Yeah. I I would love to do a Hannibal episode because obviously it is my greatest love of any piece of culture um but morgan never finished the show i watched two seasons and i liked them fine but that's season three is quite different yeah but i would have to watch it i don't dislike hannibal at all but i feel like if we discussed it it would be you talking for an hour and me going yeah (laughs) (laughs) which maybe not the most like invigorating or enlightening uh discussion I mean, maybe what we should do is, I know that people try to cross-promote their podcasts by being guests on other people's podcasts, so if there's anyone out there who has an extremely popular and successful pop culture podcast, <laughs> just have me on to, like, talk about Hannibal for Yeah, hour. that would be great. <laughs> Get um, in touch. But yeah, sadly, even though I would like to have one, that probably isn't happening. So yeah. Okay, so we have a technical question next, which we will answer quickly because it's quite technical. Um, Diet Raspberry Fanta says, what's your recording setup? Are you recording on Skype? Um, And do you edit? Yeah, we record on Skype. We both have audio programs and then I kind of edit them together. And then I remove 
the sort of stilted parts or if we have to kind of pause and google something that's our recording setup um you should read the next one i think okay you just read that one also (laughs) (laughs) so the next question is from rogue nibari and they ask is gavia secretly katie mcgrath your voice sounds exactly like her and then in all caps morgana likes yuri on ice so katie mcgrath (laughs) is an actress who is famous for the bbc show merlin and is now co-starring as lena luther on supergirl uh katie mcgrath has an irish accent (laughs) i have an anglicized scottish accent so I, i i maybe i do sound like her i don't think i sound like her i think her voice is quite distinctive but thank you and also I, I just don't feel like you're accurate. <laughs> but um, but I am flattered by the comparison. She seems like a nice lady and I do appreciate her work on Supergirl as Supergirl's true love interest. <laughs> I have never heard her speak, so I can't speak to this, but you don't sound Irish. So, no. <laughs> yeah, but that's fine. Americans get very confused. I assume this person is American, although who knows? It's, it, it's anything is possible. Um... Volpus Volpe says, oh, we're getting into a political section now. We have several political questions. <laughs> Was wondering if you had any movie shows you recently rewatched in our shared national nightmare of 2017 that suddenly felt too real. I watched Wag the Dog over the weekend and it didn't really feel like satire anymore. Oh, dear. Well, did you recently rewatch anything? Because some of the old movies I've been watching, like, Obviously, Mr. Smith, which we just talked about, was like, oh, my God. And then the film I mentioned with the Supreme Court stuff, everyone being like, it'll be so easy for you to get confirmed. You have neutral political opinions. I was like, that's what happens. Yeah, I I mean, I don't think there's anything I've rewatched necessarily. Um, Maybe because, like, there might be stuff that I would avoid rewatching now. But, you know, politics definitely does, like, really, really affect your reactions to stuff. So... The West Wing now is like nauseating to me for reasons that we discussed yeah. um, last week. I mean, obviously already, like as an adult, when I rewatch parts of the West Wing, I'm like, sometimes I'm like, I'm enjoying this sentimental trash and other times I'm just like, ugh. But um, now I'm just like, that's unbearable. I, I think the obvious choices are things like um, The Thick of It and Veep, the Armando Unici, um satirical political shows, which are were already extremely realistic, but now because they're so absurd, um, their absurdity is now not as absurd as real life. So, like, since Brexit, everyone's always talking about, oh my god, In the Loop was just, like, not ridiculous enough. Everyone's such a buffoon. And it's like, yeah, they are. Um, <laughs> so I don't know what would happen. I, I feel like if I rewatched um The Thick of It, I would still think it was an incredible piece of television because it is just world-class satire. But the things that they are um, dealing with are... The point is that a lot of the issues they're tackling are completely pointless and vacuous, right? It's about civil servants and low-level politicians in the UK. And those things are still happening now and they're still getting a lot of media coverage and the same ridiculousness is occurring. But it's now kind of distracting from the real kind of Brexit problems and actual conflicts that should be kind of in the news more and getting more like sensible coverage so i feel like if i watched that now i would just be bitter and nostalgic for a time when those kind of problems were just a kind of entertaining annoyance yeah well veep is a weird one because when it first came on it was obviously well it sort of got really got going after a season or two but um 
it was compared a lot to House of Cards as being the show that was actually what Washington was like, because House of Cards is just murder nonsense. And everyone was like, this is not, like, people are not actually this smart or conniving. People are idiots. But it is so not as crazy as what is really happening that I'm really curious to see what this season is like. I think the early reviews have been extremely positive. Obviously, it's an incredible show, but it's going to be very, very weird to watch with the impending end of the world on our doorstep. Like, it's just... I, f- I can't imagine having to make it. Like, how do you write that show with I mean, you can't this really happening? It's v- just so exists within the functioning structure of government, right? So... She's no longer the president, so I don't know what they're doing this season. It'll be slightly different. Um, but even last season felt very odd because it was happening during the all the campaign stuff. But they actually last season they went more personal and like the showrunner changed too, so that was different. But I think part of the reason they did that was because they knew that th- what else were they going to do? Like it was just too insane. <laughs> we also got a straight up politics question, which was humorous to me. Although we have many opinions on this, so uh, would you like to read it out? Zeno's Analytic asks, do you think the Tories are serious with this whole revive the Commonwealth nonsense? As an American, I can't be sure. Quick follow up on a scale from long suffering eye roll to I am frust- to like frustrated size to President Trump. How would you rate your reaction to it? to the Commonwealth situation. Um, The idea behind this is that the Conservatives who are currently in charge of the UK want to bring back what they perceive as the glory days of the British Empire. Um, I haven't really heard a sort of vocalisation of the idea of fully reviving the Commonwealth, but that is sort of the spiritual background of a lot of these policies. Like people are getting weirdly nostalgic about the old fashioned blue passports, which people are hoping will come back after Brexit, which I don't really understand as a concept. Like, obviously, that's something that a minority of people are interested in. But also, you occasionally get, you know, newspaper articles from elderly men who are saying, well, it would be great for Britain to go back to using pounds and ounces instead of the metric system, which is just bonkers, because that is an incredibly inefficient method of using things. And also, why? So I don't think that's like an explicit policy thing. And from a practical perspective, it's impossible because I mean, the British Empire was bad, right? It was really bad. (laughs) Um, And that's something that I think a lot of people, especially who went to private schools in the UK are not really aware of unless you sort of look up historical information yourself because naturally most countries, um, apart from Germany, which has a lot of education about the Nazis, uh, most countries do not educate their own population about the flaws of their country because of you know patriotism so there's a lot of sort of we get a lot of education about britain pulling together during the second world war but not a lot about colonialism so yeah there's a lot of people who like the idea of reviving the commonwealth and bringing back the british empire but it's not happening because that's impossible because britain isn't actually all that powerful a lot of our power is you know the quote-unquote soft power of culture which is uh, currently eroding very quickly because we're turning into garbage people throughout Europe. Yep. And uh, not letting people in. Yeah. And making it impossible to come as a foreign student. So <laughs> it's great strategy. The whole thing just... Uh... <laughs> in the US, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of discussion about immigration laws in the US and whether it's too easy or too hard to get in or whatever. 
British immigration law is fucked up, man. <laughs> you know, you can be literally married, but your spouse has to be earning over a certain amount of money for your spouse to not get deported. We we have a lot of detention centers. Uh, Britain's immigration situation is inhumane and terrible. So yeah, anyway, um, my summary is that yes, a lot of conservatives spiritually do want to revive the empire and no, that's not going to happen. Well, I imagine it's also a thing that you could just talk about endlessly to make certain voters feel good and then do nothing. Yeah, I mean, so, Brexit is very much right. something that's motivated by a sort of general sense of emotional unease among like more conservative and also predominantly older people in the population. And um, the more information you find out about it, the more it's just like they don't know what they're doing and they didn't really expect it to happen. Kind of exactly like the Trump situation. So, yep. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. All right. Next question from Superheroine World. So this is sort of related to the previous questions. Since you've recorded multiple episodes about movies relating to the current political climate, uh, are we going to be doing the same with the TV show? And they suggest The Wire and Show Me a Hero. I have seen both of those things. Oh, they also, um, this is a long question. Uh, they also mentioned the sort of difference between stuff like Downton Abbey and The Crown and then something like Black Mirror, which are obviously as opposite as it's possible to be on the British TV landscape. The difficulty with those things is that they've all happened already. I mean, I guess Black Mirror is... It, continuing and neither of us is i guess you had to watch part of the crown i did but... I, I did watch part of the crown and i found it incredibly irritating and yeah. also really i mean it's very slow a lot of its filler so it's sort of if you want to watch people in nice outfits historically just kind of coexisting then it's enjoyable but politically it is you know tying into the previous question it's like an advert for colonialism and it's quite like weird and classist and racist and stuff it's just glorifying the royal family. What you're describing is the Netflix drift problem where yeah. all of Netflix's shows are like four episodes longer than they need to be. Yeah. I think Kimmy Schmidt is actually an example of something that's not like that, but that's because it was originally made for NBC. And so it's not really a Netflix show. And also it's like a sitcom. So exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't think we're going to do episodes. I mean, I don't think I'm going to watch The Wire and I might watch Show Me a Hero, but I don't feel like that's something we're going to do a podcast about. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, but like we will probably in the future do podcasts about politically relevant TV shows because that's something we're interested in. Um, I wish I'd watched The Americans because Morgan is obsessed with The Americans oh. and I have not seen it and I oh. know I would really like it. But when does it does it end this year? Am I too late no, for us to? No, next year. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, so you should binge watch all five seasons. Okay. Before the sixth season next year. It's only 13 episodes a season, so that's technically doable, but you would have to watch a lot of television. Yeah. But it's so good. It's Although that is also not really, like, that's been getting a lot of attention because obviously it's about Soviet spies in America, and so it has bizarrely become this weird hot button thing. But it's really not, it's not about politics in that way. But well, we both like Soviet spies, so... But you should watch it anyway. <laughs> I'm, well, I mean, this is it's just not really relevant to this question. I mean, it all kind of depends on what winds up coming out and what we wind up watching. It's difficult to do TV stuff retroactively because it does require a lot of time. Whereas movies, you can do a one-off film that came out anytime in the last hundred years 
and it takes two hours to watch. Uh, and we will close with two very strange but wonderful questions that have nothing to do with politics. Why don't you start? <laughs> okay, so this question, I have no idea how we're going to answer it, but um, <laughs> Madison Maximus asked, um, Taika Waititi tweeted about directing Manchester by the Sea, part two. If this project did indeed exist in some alternate universe, thoughts? So Taika Waititi <laughs> is the director of What We Do in the Shadows and Hunt for the Wilder People, which is incredible and on Netflix and you should definitely watch it because it's amazing. He's also directing the upcoming Thor movie, which we are looking forward to because we're Thor fans and also it looks fun. Um, Manchester by the Sea, we discussed in a previous podcast from the London Film Festival. It is one of the most depressing movies ever. It's very, very good. Um, yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, where to where to begin? I just the I don't really have any thoughts on this. Just the suggestion is so beautiful to me that um it's just the image of my mind. It makes me really happy. Uh two more different things could not be combined into one uh, concept. Although Hunt for the Wilder People is about a middle-aged man grumpily taking on a young child and then they bond. So in a way, thematically, there is a residence, but otherwise, not at all. <laughs> oh, oh my word, excellent. And our last question is from Space is Pretty Cool, who says, if you had a His Dark Materials slash Pacific Rim crossover AU, would the demons get to pilot their own special animal-shaped Jaeger? <laughs> Okay, well, the good news to this questioner is this is actually something I have considered in the past. <laughs> so I don't recall what the situation was. Maybe there's a fanfic about this and I've actually read it, or maybe I was just thinking about I mean, it in my head because there's such compatible concepts. But I think the animal has to be inside the Jaeger with you, you know? So the, the giant robots are very large. Unless your demon is like an elephant or something, you can fit that in a compartment. You know, the head is big enough to fit two humans on running machines inside it. The demon has to be in there. If the, if the demon was in a separate Jaeger, you'd get separated. It's really dangerous. Yes, I agree. And then if it's an elephant, I guess you just have to have an extra big one. Or yeah. possibly not become a pilot. <laughs> yeah, I guess that the problem would be the conflict in that fanfic would be someone who has a really heavy large demon but they're drift compatible with someone else so they have to make a special Jaeger but you know that's a technical question rather than an emotional conflict really. I'm going to look up right now whether this fanfiction exists. I feel like it must. Someone has done this. I, I mean, mean they are the two two very popular subgenres of fanfic AU. I mean I have personally co-written a very lengthy His Dark Materials Demon Hannibal AU. It was a book. <laughs> I have written a uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy Damon AU, so we have both done this. Yeah. Um, um, there are zero works in Pacific Rim that also have the tag Alternate Universe His Dark Materials student. So perhaps it has not been done. Yeah, maybe it was just in my brain. Could be the pioneer. So someone should do it and take advantage of this concept that someone has sent to our podcast. Uh, that is all. That is all the questions. Thank you so much to everyone for sending them in. This was a lot of fun. 
So as we mentioned earlier, we will be watching Romy and Michelle's high school reunion next week, which Gav has seen and I have not, so I am very excited to get to watch that for the first time. Thanks for listening, and as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review on iTunes. That's how we find new listeners. And otherwise, you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.